0: Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. This is where we really get into the meat of what Paul is really wanting to get into. And Just by way of review, I I want to remind you that uh, Colossians is one of the prison epistles uh, that, that Paul wrote and he wrote it in response to his friend Epaphras who had founded the church at Colossae and somehow he had contacted Paul in prison and he was concerned that all of the heresy and all of the apostasy and false teaching that was so prevalent in the city of Colossae would eventually seep into the church and he wanted to try to prevent that. Uh, The church at Colossae was a wonderful church, doctrinally sound, they were loving and caring, um, but certainly the concern is always there if the pressure is always there. And when Paul writes back, he's obviously concerned with two things, although he never mentions the names of the specific false teachers. uh, He does mention a false Judaistic legalism, uh, salvation by works of the law. Uh, But we also see a warning against mysticism, and that is simply a, a hidden or a secret knowledge that God gives to a person outside of the revelation that God has given. And our society uh, is absolutely saturated with those two things even today with a works-based salvation as well as a mystical, uh, supernatural knowledge of God that, that goes against the Word of God. Every cult started like that. We're going to actually look at that a little bit today. And, and so he has been, Paul has been reminding them of the gospel, who they are in Jesus Christ. Uh, he has clearly pointed out the fact that Christ is God incarnate and He came in a body. He uses this specific language to tackle a lot of these false teachings because uh, I would... You know, if I had to guess, I I would think that on the legalistic side, Paul was probably dealing with the Pharisees and even the Essenes, very legalistic work salvation, the Judaizers certainly. Uh, But on the mystical side, he was probably dealing with the Gnostics of that day. And the Gnostics... Uh, They did not think that uh, God could inhabit a body. And so they taught that, you know, Jesus just appeared in a body, but He wasn't actually a body. And so uh, you can only imagine how many doctrines that messes up. You know, the virgin birth, Him being the God-man, Him experiencing hunger and pain and uh, all the things He did, and, and even death on the cross. Even His resurrection was not a bodily resurrection. So He's dealing with these things. And He is... In chapter 2, we've seen the comfort that comes from knowing who we are in Christ, specifically that our hearts are founded in the love of God and the assurance of the mystery of Christ. And then in these uh, verses today, um, he's dealing with completeness or being complete in Christ. And I actually was just going to preach on that, but so many times this happens. I get to really studying something and... You know, I start out with like three points, and one point turns into a whole message. And so, before we even get to really being complete in Christ, Paul begins to deal with what it means and what causes uh, to be incomplete and in, without Christ. So, I want to look at being incomplete without Christ this morning. And so, let's read our text today, Colossians two, beginning verse eight. We'll read just a few verses. It says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. We just come to you in Jesus' name. So thankful, Lord, for... Uh, those that have come, and it's just good to see so much of our church family that have been able to come back to us. And uh, Lord, just what, what a wonderful opportunity to be able to come here and, Lord, sing, sing the songs that we've sung, but to know the truth that we're singing about. Lord, if there's one lost either uh, in our presence this morning or maybe one that's watching the live stream that's not saved, Lord, I pray that uh, you would grant them repentance and draw them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those that are saved and maybe they're struggling with their joy, maybe they're fighting battles and temptations and uh, Lord, the battle has caused them to have an outward look instead of an upward and eternal look. I pray that You would help them this morning. Would You fill me, Holy Spirit, empty me of sin and self and I pray that Christ would be magnified and the Word would be preached with clarity and authority. And we just give these things to You. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So we're looking at being incomplete without Christ. You know, every false religion and every cult, certainly in this country, uh, they they really go to great lengths to have the appearance of being Christian, to have the appearance of being what we need. And, And many times they even claim to be a way to Christ, but they're empty and destructive and deceitful. One of the very first things that I have learned to do when, when establishing a conversation and a dialogue with the LDS, is I really start out with this question, I say, would you consider yourself to be a biblical Christian? And most of the time they say yes. And I said, well, I, I really want to you know, establish a foundation for our conversation at this point because it's logically impossible that I could be a Christian and you could be a Christian. Because your founder, Joseph Smith, said that uh, the apostolic authority was lost, the Word of God was corrupted, it passed through so many hands, Uh, the church was corrupted beyond recognition, it couldn't be saved, and he had to come along and restore Christianity. And I said, the reason it's logically impossible that we could both be Christians is because I have put my faith and trust in the things that Joseph Smith claims were lost. There's no way those two things are the same. But you see the deception there. And and so many false religions and cults, they have the appearance of being what we need, but they're established in wicked philosophy and vain, empty deceit. And we have to discern that. And so (coughs) today I'm really going to focus in on verse 8. There's Paul is really specific about the things uh, that can make us incomplete without Christ. Sometimes that means not being saved at all, and sometimes that means confusing those that are saved to a point where we lose uh, our joy of our salvation. We can't lose our salvation, but we can be vexed by these extra biblical things. So what are some things... uh, that will keep us from being incomplete in Christ? What are the obstacles of being complete in Him? The first one I want you to see, and I put them together because they go together, and that is philosophy and vain deceit. Verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Now, Paul understands he knows that as he is writing to this church at Colossae, yes, it is a body of believers. And, and so that's something important to consider. Even believers can be spoiled by these things. But he understands that not everybody in this congregation is probably saved either. And so he understands his audience. That's the same way I'm going to try to preach it this morning. There's nobody saved or lost that's outside of the influence of these things. And so we need to be understand this. Philosophy and vain deceit. Now, philosophy, the word philosophy comes from two different Greek words. Philio, which means love, and Sophia, which means wisdom. So it means the love of wisdom. And philosophy by itself is not a bad thing. In fact, true philosophy, just like true science, will always point to God. In fact, I love philosophy. It's, it was one of the, my favorite subjects in college. And the reason is because, obviously from a Bible college, they're going to give you true and proper and right philosophy and put it in context. You know, even, uh, I I believe, even before we get to Scripture, now obviously Scripture is our ultimate, final authority for everything. But even without going to Scripture, I think that you can make a very compelling argument for the existence of God from philosophical arguments, like uh, the teleological argument. Hey, the world has design, look at it. it. It has so much order, there must be a designer. That's a great philosophical argument for God. The moral argument for God. Why do we all have an understanding of certain things that are just right or wrong across generation and time and culture? Where did that come from? Well, those moral laws came from a moral lawgiver. Uh, there's some other ones I could mention. That's not my point this morning, but philosophy by itself is not a bad thing. Uh, in fact, even the ancient pagan philosophers believed in what Aristotle called the unmoved mover, talking about He wouldn't have called it God, but he would have called it some type of God or gods. He he recognized uh, that there's no way that all this came from nothing. Even the the non-Christian pagan philosophers of the past have more sense than most university professors do today. And so (coughs) um, uh, there is a pursuit of wisdom without God. Francis, uh, Francis Schaeffer said, Man cannot begin with himself. And arrive at ultimate reality there's no way you can do that. Um, these humanistic ideologies by the way, they're only about 200 years old. you know to hear uh, many uh, atheist scientists and philosophers and doctors and university professors to hear them talk today, you would think that it had always been this way but in fact it's it's a very new thing that's only about 200 years old. You see nobody really questioned absolute truth till around 200 250 years ago. And it's affected the way that we do everything. It affects the way we do science. It affects the way we do philosophy. It affects the way that we uh, answer questions like, where are the origins of life and things like that. All these things are new. Um, but James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, you don't have to turn here for the sake of time, but just jot it down. Uh, it warns us about a satanic type of wisdom. James says, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Now that envying and strife, that's against God. This is who he's talking about. And then he said, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. God is not the author of confusion. That's satanic. And all this stuff we're talking about, it causes confusion. I mean, think about, again, think about the, the trans stuff going on today. All the confusion with the LBGT and all that. That's confusion. And it comes from bitter envying and strife against God's created order. The pursuit of wisdom and knowledge apart from God is evil and it's fruitless. Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Uh, Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The Bible says that the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And apart from the knowledge of God, we are left with absolute absurdity. We can't make sense of anything without God. Everything turns on its head without God. We can't make sense and answer basic questions of things like where we came from. You try to answer that without God. Uh, who are we? Who we are? We're always going to get that wrong apart from God. Because without God, people think they're a good person and they've got good intentions and they're just wonderful. And No, God says you're wicked and unholy and not a God seeker. There's none good, there's none righteous. Our righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. Uh, Without without God, we have no real answer for what our purpose is. I mean, really, for the atheist, the humanist, the best they can hope for, and their motto is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What is your purpose? Everything you do, uh, in the end, it really doesn't matter. Everybody's going to take an eternal dirt nap, uh, and it just doesn't, no, no matter what you do, it has no eternal lasting value. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It's like, it would be like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic after it hit the iceberg. Like, what does it matter? That's, that's the humanist outlook, the honest humanist. And, you know, we can't make sense of death, you know, why death and where somebody goes when they die and why people die. We don't have any answer for suffering without God. You know, marriage doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, really, did you know that marriage really does not make any sense at all without a desire to please Christ. Why, why would people even get married? Why, why would they do that? They can do everything they want to do without that. You have no reason to get married that makes sense other than I want my marriage to try to be a reflection of Christ and I want to raise children and the nurture and admission of the Lord and I, I want to be an example. That, that's, outside of that, why, why would you do that? No wonder marriage has become meaningless in this life. You can't make sense out of sexuality apart from God. God has made it clear that He created us male and female as anybody with a set of eyes can see. And that the purpose of marriage (coughs) is one man, one woman, one lifetime to honor God, to bring children to the world and all those things that we know. And sex is to be a gift within that context. And outside of that, uh, without God, humans are turned into beasts. People act like animals, like shepherd dogs when you get away from God's created order. And that's what's going on, and that's one reason our society is so messed up. You know, every gift that God gives us can either be used for our own selfish pleasure and our own selfish means or it can be used in a way that honors and glorifies God. And the sex that glorifies and honors God is the the kind that takes place in the covenant of marriage before God. That's that's it. Everything else is a dishonor to God. It's outside of God's created order. And I wasn't even going there. That was for free. But we are. We're reduced to animals and brute beasts apart from that. Uh, evolution, humanism, and psychology are all attempts at wisdom apart from God. Now, um, I recently had to take a required psychology class for this degree that I'm going for, and even the Bible colleges, if they're going to be accredited, they have to do certain things like psychology classes. And we get it; we get full strength. Now, it's not; it's not reduced at all. And uh, I couldn't help but find it funny. How, just how hard people will try not to acknowledge God. Some of the things that psychologists have come up with, some of the terms and phrases like, a, uh, just to throw one out at you, uh, cognitive dissonance is a, basically a feeling, uh, it, it's a bad feeling that people have when they do things that go against their own moral uh, sense of right and wrong. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh, you mean a conscience? Yeah, the Bible talks about that. They don't want to admit that. They don't want to to go there. It's just hilarious to me. That psychology book was this thick and throughout that whole thing, I mean, it's amazing the things they did to try to dance around God. It's amazing. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Our public schools and university are absolutely saturated with this stuff. Godless philosophy may may appeal to the pride of so-called intellectual minds, but it's empty... And it's incomplete. We can only be complete in Jesus Christ. That's it. And everything else falls well short of that. <coughs> Don't let any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit. But, but secondly, also not only can philosophy and vain deceit uh, make you incomplete and separate you from Christ, but also the traditions of men is real good about doing this too. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. And then he goes on to explain more specifically how that happens. And then he says, after the tradition of men. Now a tradition is something that's handed down from generation to generation. And I feel like Paul no doubt had the Pharisees and the Jews in mind when he wrote this to the Colossian believers. Uh, Because the Jews had added so many rules uh, to the Old Testament law that it was unrecognizable. Uh, even to the point of writing their own holy books such as the Mishnah. Uh, the Mishnah is an extra writing that the Jews came up with and it was basically a rule book. It was a rule book for their holiness. You know, the Jews had this mentality that, okay, we've got the Old Testament law and you know, it had 613 laws. You would have thought they would have the common sense to look at that and say, you know what, we're not doing so well with that. We couldn't even keep the Ten Commandments. What, what's God going to do with us? But no, they looked at that and said, you know, we're doing so great at this. We need even more rules and more laws. Because their thinking was, um, they called it fencing in the law. Like, uh, they, they understood that it, it just seems to be human nature, that people want to get right on the edge of wrong. That They, they want to get as close to the edge as they can where they can look out and get a scent of it. They want to get as close as they can without going over the edge. So in the, the mind of the Pharisee, in the mind of these Jews, they thought, well, hey, if we come up with even more strict laws, we can put a fence around the Old Testament law, and that way, even if people go past the fence a little bit, they won't go past the law. That's insanity. You couldn't keep the law anyway. So I've got a great idea. Let's burden people with even more laws they can't keep. But that's exactly what they did. And that's exactly what the false religions do today. Go get you a copy of the Mormon Doctrine and Covenants and some of their books and writings and, and understand that, that it's fluid. It's changing. It's They believe in continual revelation. They could have an apostle say something today that totally contradicts what one said 20 years ago. There's no, there's no way that anybody could even memorize those things, much less live them out. It's, it's just an added burden. And... um. We see a great example of this from the Jews and the Pharisees in Matthew 15 and verse 2 when the Pharisees said to Jesus, Why did the disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Uh, we also see this when the Pharisees get upset with Christ and His disciples because they, they were picking corn and eating corn on the Sabbath day. You know, heaven forbid. Uh, I mean, they had a rule book about the Sabbath day You ought to look some of this stuff up. I mean, it's absolutely silly. Like, I think it was they had a limit of, like, if they went out of the house, they had a limit of, like, 200 steps they could take for that day. Uh, If they were, uh, even if they were headed to synagogue, they couldn't, like, bend over to remove, like, a tree limb from the road. I mean, it's just crazy because they couldn't work on the Sabbath day. And so that's, that's just how crazy it can get. Um, they had elevated their own man-made traditions to the level of Scripture and as a result, they heap burdens upon themselves that literally nobody including themselves could ever bear. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 9, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They had raised their man-made traditions up to the level of Scripture. <laughs> it's so sad when people do that. Uh, it's damnable when you do it uh, to make it a goal of salvation, but it's very burdensome when you add unbiblical rules to saved people for the the sake of uh, sanctification. It's not good enough to be zealous in our worship. Our worship of God must be according to the truth of God. And and humanly speaking, one of the biggest obstacles to a person coming to Christ is admitting that they're wrong and that their man-made traditions aren't pleasing to God. Not only that, but in many cases, people have to admit that their own family is wrong, that their own church is wrong. Uh, I was raised, I've mentioned this before, I was raised in the Church of Christ, and they teach you that uh, you have to be baptized to be saved. They believe that the water puts you in contact with the blood of Christ. But not only that, that, you know, not just any baptism will do. It has to be baptism into the church of Christ. And, and so in order to be saved, I had to realize that what I had been taught was wrong. And I had to unlearn the things I had learned and I had to kind of turn my back on that stuff even though uh, I've got family that's neck deep in the church of Christ even today. And so, you know, think about it. Even when it comes to like the LDS. I mean, that's, it's got to be the saving grace of God because they're going to have to tell a lot of people they were wrong. They're going to have to admit I was wrong and this system is wrong and this work salvation is wrong and maybe my parents were wrong and their parents were wrong. And Hey, but that's okay because in order to be saved, you're going to have to put Christ first anyway. And I'll say this, even in the life of a saved person, I don't, I don't want to just throw rocks at people outside the church. Um, even in the life of a saved person. Our traditions can hinder our sanctification and our walk with Christ and and when we do that, it will stifle our joy in the Lord. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a Baptist church and if I were to give the sermon a title, it would have been exactly what we're going to see in Colossians 2 in the coming weeks and that is touch not, taste not, handle not, don't do this, don't do that, you know don't don't drink don't smoke go to church you know and all listen i'm not i'm not saying that we should never talk about those things but if that is the height of your christianity that's really shallow it's really shallow there's a lot more to the christian life than the don't do's in fact uh, i was so consumed with the don't do's the do's and don't do's in my early christian walk that i mean i couldn't i had I lived on Holy Hermit Island in the early part of my Christian walk. If you want to know where Holy Hermit Island is, just ask me and I'll give you directions after church, okay? I had painted myself in such a corner, I didn't think think people were saved unless they were just like me. You know, one of the hallmarks, I think, of many young Christians that really want to serve God is they elevate everything to the level of tier one. There's no second tier issues at all. Every, everything is on par with the, the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and you know, all those things we hold dear. And that's just not the case. I've got some dear uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, dear friends of mine that love the Lord. I know they pray for me and I pray for them. That Man, there's just, some, there's just some things we disagree about. That being translated, there's just some things that they're wrong about. And I love telling them to their face that we have that kind of relationship, you know. Um, but anyway, uh, we just disagree on some secondary things and I, I really believe they're going to be my neighbor in heaven. Um, everything is not tier one. But uh, I, I was so consumed by that that it had really stolen my joy. Like I had no grace for anybody. I, I felt like I was compromising if I let anything go. And I was reading through Galatians 5 and the Spirit Fruits one day, just in my regular reading. And when I read the first three spirits, uh, the spiritual fruits, love, joy, and peace, it's like I got stabbed in the heart by a knife. And I realized that I didn't have any of those. And I realized that the things that I was just so locked down on weren't necessarily even of God, and there was no grace anywhere in my system of beliefs. So God has had to break me of that, and so, and He has, and I'm thankful for that. We can lose our joy over silly things if we're not careful. Um, but what I would say is we better get into the Word of God, we better let it speak for itself, and let it change us. Let it change our tradition. We need to, when we come to the Word of God, and the Word of God just flies all over our tradition, we need to throw our tradition to the wind. Um, my father-in-law, just, I'm just going to give you one example. I'm not going to give you many because I could, I could be here all day with the silly traditions that I have heard in my lifetime within the Baptist church. But my, my father-in-law, he, he was sick not too long ago and he had to have a man uh, fill in at his church. And um, he, he knew this man. I mean, he obviously had some degree of trust in him or he wouldn't let him preach. And for a solid hour, on a Sunday night, his whole message, I'm not talking about something he mentioned in passing, I'm talking about the whole message was about men having beards. And number, number one, I thought to myself, well, I, you know, I bet they just left there Sunday night on fire for God, ready to go to work and face the world the next day. What an encouraging, what a deep message, you know. And uh, that's one reason I'm growing mine out. Amen. Because I just like people knowing where I stand. And in this society like knowing, first of all, that I'm a man. Amen. (laughs) But also, too, whenever I do make my way back, and obviously I don't do it as much as I used to, I just like it because it aggravates certain people. I know that's probably not spiritual, but it feels like it, so I'm going to go with it. But uh, I'm serious. And... And... You know, obviously, he he had to go back. Uh, my father-in-law had to go back and correct that and kind of do damage control. But um, I ended up—I I never did see the man, but I actually ran into his daughter, and uh, we got to talking about it. And and she was talking about it, and she was kind of insinuating, you know, that that I needed to shave. And and I just—I did. I went apoplectic in the name of Jesus. I just—I was not—I was not rude, but I just said, you know. It's really interesting, you know. Back in Isaiah, when it talks about the fact that they ripped the hair out of Jesus' face, I wonder where that comes from. And she said, "Well, uh, he he probably just couldn't get to a razor." It's what he said, what she said. Now, poor Jesus. And then then she made the statement that God has never used a man that had a beard. And I was like. I'm literally, I'm literally hold on, can you hold on a second? I'm literally pulling up my phone, I got pictures of Spurgeon and you know, I'm just scrolling through and I'm like, man, what God could have used it if they had just shaved. <laughs> and she just the arguments got sillier and dumber and just and and I'm listen, I'm not trying to be mean, but the bottom line is she would come to Scripture, and if her tradition butted up against Scripture, she went with her tradition what she had been taught, what Daddy said. And see, we do that as Christians. And even though we can't lose our salvation, we can believe stuff that will really, it'll really hurt our joy in the Lord. Touch not, taste not, handle not. We, we think that we have to go through these checklists to please God. Listen, God is never going to be more pleased with you than He was the day that Christ died for our sin. Because it's all in Christ. I'm In Christ, I'm saved, forgiven, I'm accepted by God, I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm a saint, I'm on my way to heaven. That's never going to change. That's my position in Christ. Now granted, uh, we can obviously do things that displease the Lord, and yes, repentance ought to be the lifestyle for a Christian. I'm not demeaning that, but my position in Christ doesn't change. I'm, I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so we need to throw our tradition to the wind. (laughs) The traditions of men will keep us from being complete as far as maturity and joy. I'm not talking about our position in Him. But in many of those cases, if they're trusting their tradition for salvation, uh, they're falling short of the grace of Christ. They're not even saved, they're on their way to hell. And so we got to be submissive to the Word of God, what the Word of God says. But number three, Not only can philosophy and vain deceit uh, keep us from being complete in Christ, not only can the traditions of men do the same thing, but thirdly, uh, the rudiments of the world. Look look again at verse 8. Beware lest any men spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. In other words, these two things... Uh, the, the, these categories that he's given us cannot coexist with going after Christ. A lot of people would try to you know, use word salad and conflate the two, but they're, they're two separate things. Um, now, the word rudiment, I think, is really important. Uh, rudiments speak of the elementary things. You know, like when you went to elementary school, you learned the alphabet. The, the alphabet, the ABCs, that is the elements of the English language. When we communicate, we're using words and sentences, which is a more complicated form of the alphabet. You know, we don't communicate just with using sounds like, ah, so, you know, we don't do that. So when, when Paul is talking about going back to the rudiments of the world, he's saying, you're going backwards. He, he's saying, you, you have left something that is deep and theologically rich and sound for the rudiments of the world, for for man's opinion and logic and a sensational philosophy and things like that, you're going backwards. And Paul definitely was concerned, as I mentioned, about the mysticism of his day, probably from the Gnostics. And the professing church has certainly been in a dumbing down phase for quite some time. But I, I did want to mention this, and this this is just a point of doctrine it has doesn't have a whole lot to do with where I'm at. I just wanted to share this. I I just learned this day and it blew my mind. Uh, I'm sure maybe some of you have heard this and maybe you didn't connect the dots like I didn't connect the dots. But when the LDS missionaries came last week for a second time and sat on my couch, one of them told me, and I've been told this before, that the fall was actually a good thing. That Satan was actually the protagonist in the story because he gave, Adam and Eve, that knowledge that would give them free will choices. And, I, and he, he tried to make the statement that, um, that even though they might have transgressed against God, it wasn't a sin. Like, it wasn't a sin to disobey God. Now, what I did not know this, I was studying this week about Gnosticism, and did you know that that is the exact same thing that the Gnostic heretics of the first two centuries taught? That was not an idea that originated with Joseph Smith. That is Gnosticism. They teach, I'm talking about almost word for word, the exact same thing that Adam and Eve were locked up in this cage of the Garden of Eden. Sometimes I wish he'd locked me up in that cage. Locked them up. this, This mean God of the Old Testament locked poor Adam and Eve up in this cage of the Garden of Eden. Didn't give them any choices except one. And, and Satan comes along and makes them aware of, hey, no, if you actually eat, then you will have this knowledge. And, and so it, it, it comes straight from Gnostic heresy. What did I tell you about Satan not having any new lies, just new people to fool with the old one? Isn't that amazing? That in 1830, Joseph Smith came up with the same thing that the Gnostic heretics of 1800 years prior came up with. That's amazing to me. Uh, Satan only really has that one message. He just repackages it and renames it through the centuries. But anyway, the professing church has been headed that way for a long time. You know, I, I really believe in my heart when most people, at least in America, when most people go to worship service, they're hungering for a good experience. Much more so than doctrinal truth. They want an experience. Come experience worship. I mean, really, if you turned on the average church service on a Sunday morning, you couldn't tell it from a nightclub. I mean, it is the, it's the same thing. And the truth is, it's, it's not enough to be zealous in our worship. The Jews were zealous without a knowledge. Our worship must be grounded in the truth of the Word of God. John 4 and verse 24, Jesus said, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we're not talking about my truth, your truth, a truth. We're talking about the truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, and it is the truth that sets us free. Professing churches all over the world are dropping doctrine for an experience. And I believe this is most likely how all these false churches are going to come together and worship the Antichrist, Um, I would highly recommend, I don't do this much, um, there's a series on YouTube called the Third Adam series. I would highly recommend you watch those. Uh, Spencer Smith is a, a Baptist missionary who has put together these things about basically witchcraft and the occult within the church. He's a missionary to Kenya. He plants churches in Africa. And he said, in Africa, he said, it's just saturated in witchcraft. He said, it's just ingrained in the society. And he said, the churches, most churches down there, he said, they, they, have, may, they might have a Christian sign on the door, but they're doing the same thing that the witch doctors are doing in the jungle. He said, it's the exact same thing. And he said, lo and behold, I come back to the United States and I'm recognizing things from that experience that I really wasn't aware of before. And it's amazing the amount of research he's put into this. <clears throat> Uh, But probably, to me, the best quote he had in the three-part series that I've seen, he said, The church of the last days is going to be united by an experience instead of by doctrine. And one of the things he did that really was eye-opening to me is he had a split screen where he showed a, a church service at a charismatic Pentecostal church where everybody's rolling around and falling out and jabbering in tongues. And right next to that... He showed a worship service, uh, a Hindu worship service in India, and you couldn't tell the two apart. They were the same exact thing because it's the same exact experience coming from the same source and all these different denominations and all these different religions are wanting to cast aside their differences and come together because there's not really that much that separates us anyway. (coughs) The devil has always, historically, been a uniter. Uh, I don't know if you've been paying a lot of attention uh, this week, but the the Church of England is having their big synod right now. And there's a big push to try to get a majority vote to change their doctrine on human sexuality. Imagine that. And I was listening to the Archbishop of Canterbury and I wanted to throw up. He made the statement that... Uh, you know, basically that God respects and honors even, even uh, loving homosexual unions and the church should bless it and the church should be united by these things instead of being divided by this old book is basically what He said. And everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. I told the LDS, I said, boys, what are you going to do when your apostles and your leadership in the coming year come out and say that God is now affirming of LGBT bishops and, and leaders and church members, man, you, they got offended at that. They said, it'll never happen. I said, you're going to come back to my house and apologize when it does. They don't have a reason for it not to. They're not standing on this unchanging book. It's all fluid. They they lick their finger and hold it to the wind and sit, see which way the cultural winds are blowing. They're going to do it. One of them Mentioned to me the Pope recently, I mean, the, the, the Pope they have right now is the most affirming Catholic individual that's ever supported. I mean, he's so openly affirming of it. It's going to be church dogma before too long. And the, the LDS missionaries actually brought that to my attention. And he said the reason they did that is because they're afraid they're going to lose uh, income in the church. And I said, you're exactly right. I said, you don't think the LDS leaders are facing that same pressure right now? Have you ever been to Salt Lake City lately? (laughs) It's like the Sodom of the West. And so, yeah, it's going to happen. That's why we have to anchor what we believe in the unchanging, immutable truths of the Word of God. Guess what? They can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want, come up with whatever they want. If the Lord doesn't come back for a thousand more years, I can go back to this book and guess what? It's going to say the same thing it did yesterday. God is not a schizophrenic. And he doesn't change his mind about moral truth to fit our cultural appetites. <coughs> and so we have to anchor it. Um, <coughs> this is really important too. This is something you need to get. Anytime there has been a real nationwide move of God, and, and they've been pretty rare historically speaking. You know, the societies are never neutral. They're always going into apostasy. Unless God reverses that, that's always been the case. You know, we just don't stay neutral. You know, United States, we've had it so good here. We're such a free country. We've been so blessed. We've been so prosperous. You would have thought that we would have just been content, just to ride it on out. No, we can't do that. We, we gotta, we gotta shake our fist at God. We gotta, we gotta celebrate the things that He abhors. We've got to teach the things that are contrary to the truth of the Word of God and now we're going to be destroyed for it. We are being destroyed. And we have not seen anything yet. Just buckle up. But that's always been the case. Societies always head to apostasy unless God intervenes and pulls them back. There's been a few major times He's done that. But every time there's been a real nationwide shaking, God-honoring revival, any time there's been a nationwide move of God, um, it's always reflected in the literature. Now, if you think about the early church, now I realize this is in a category all by itself because we're talking about the inspiration of the Scriptures. Uh, but the early church, he moved in the early church and turned the world upside down. And what literature did we get? We got the New Testament, right? Uh, you think about the Reformation. Uh, we've got the writings of you know, men like Luther and Calvin who... Certainly weren't perfect, but man, God sure did use them to turn the church around. Uh, we can go back today and be blessed by their literature. Um, we, we think about uh, the Puritans and what the writings of the Puritans, they left us some of the richest literature in church history. Men like uh, Jonathan Edwards and um, you know, Thomas Boston and men like that. And, and many historians consider uh, Charles Spurgeon to be the last of the Puritans. What a time that was. What great literature uh, was given to us. But then you can also recognize this literature (coughs) by movements like the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening was actually a man-centered emotionalism that tried to mimic the First Great Awakening. Uh, And by the way, the American church still has not recovered from that movement. Uh, When we talk about the literature that came from that movement, that period of history gave us The Book of Mormon, The Watchtower Society, Science and Health, which is the work of Mary Baker Eddy in Christian Science, the works of Charles Darwin, most famously The Origin of Species, as well as most of the humanistic enlightenment literature. All that came during that moment, during that movement. Why is that? Because during the Second Great Awakening, that was kind of when the glass ceiling was broken. People no longer honored the Word of God as their chief authority, it was all about emotionalism and what you feel and what you think about God. And that's where all these cults came from. Before then, it couldn't have happened because people, they put too much emphasis, they had too much knowledge of this book. And so, that's where it came from. You can see the corrupt fruit of that even today. Um, Real revival, real worship, real salvation, real joy is grounded in truth. It is the truth that makes us free. And it's too easy to try to put God in a box of our own making and not submit to the authority of Scripture. I was talking to a Jehovah's Witness online this week that had found some of my YouTube videos and was commenting on it. And it's so amazing to me, man. These cults, I mean, they have this, every one of them is like a a broken record. They have the same exact talking points that have been beat into their head for years. And when you give them sound scriptural advice and proof, they just, it's almost like they, they put the record back and repeat the same thing, and they'll put the record back and they'll repeat the same thing. And I got to a point where I said, man, you know, there's really no reason to keep, you know, continue this conversation. You've not addressed the biblical arguments, and you keep repeating these same straw man talking points that aren't even true, and they don't even reflect, reflect what biblical Christianity teaches. And here's what I did. Just to get him thinking, here's what I did, and this is what I normally do about the Trinity, I'll ask him, I'll say, "Where did God?" I said, who, "Who raised Jesus Christ from the dead?" And they'll, 100 percent of the time, they'll say, "Well, God did." I say, "You're absolutely right. We get that from places like Romans 10:9. I said, "But which one raised him? Which one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit?" And a lot of times I may say the Father, or it's irrelevant, but if you, if you take them to like Galatians 1, it says, "God the Father." raised up His Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Romans 8.11 says the Spirit raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days, talking about the temple of His body. So again, who raised Jesus from the dead? Outside of a Trinitarian view of Scripture, you cannot make sense of that. And what this young man told me is he said, I don't have to look up those Scripture because I already know that God did it. And I said, well, I, I hope you understand that I'm coming from a biblical worldview and you're coming from your own opinion. I just hope you recognize the difference there in authority. The conversation was over at that point. He, he had taken his own tradition, what he had been taught, you know, his own logic, and, and tried to read it into Scripture. He didn't care. He didn't care what this book says. But we can do that even as saved, born-again Christians. Not, not about issues of salvation, but about issues of sanctification and modesty and holiness and all these things that can bog us down if we're not specific about what the Bible says. Um, (coughs) I would say this. If you haven't changed anything in 20 years, you haven't learned anything in 20 years. Because the truth is, when we get saved, we don't get saved knowing everything, do we? And so if nothing changes, it means we haven't learned anything. And I have met people, they can read this Bible for 30, 40, 50 years and change nothing about what they believe. You know what they're doing without even realizing it? They read the Bible with the lenses of their tradition. And that way when they come to a passage of Scripture that just blows up what they believe, they somehow twist it and rationalize it in their mind and just keep on reading. Nothing ever changes. We need to be in submission to the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Learn the Word of God. Submit to it. Listen, God has changed some things in my belief. He's changed some things in my theology. He's changed some things in the way that I live my life. There's things that I believe in now that as a young Christian, I would have thought I was a slew-footed compromiser. And I I, I now realize it's, it's nothing but Christian maturity. And I'm sure that you could say that about some things in your life. That's the way that sanctification works. That's the way it's supposed to work, but we have to be in submission to the Word of God. These last days, the professing church, I believe, is being divided into two categories. Those that are being united by the truth of the Word of God and doctrine, and those that are united by experience and culture. We're seeing that all across the denominational spectrum. But a superficial theology will lead you to an empty emotionalism and won't make you complete in Christ. Christ is the only way that we can be saved and made complete in Him. Look at verses 9 and 10, and we're done. <coughs> for in Him, this is we're going to be next week, for in Him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. We're complete in Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient. So are you complete in Christ? Or have you been ruined by a wicked philosophy? Have you been uh, hollowed out by vain deceit? Have you been burdened down by the traditions of men? And have you been dumbed down by the rudiments of the world? Listen, as, as God's people, we all have a deep theology. And I'm not talking about a knowledge that just puffs up. I'm talking about a knowledge that gets deep down in our heart and works its way out in our life. Because our worship and service to God can never go wider than our theology goes deep. The worst thing we could be is a half inch deep and a mile wide. Christ is sufficient. We can be complete in Him. Isn't that a wonderful truth? But don't be ruined by the things and the philosophies of this world.